Welcome to America in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. I'm John Spataro, and this is the 40th week of 2021. Coming up, we'll take a quick look at one of the top stories from TheCenterSquare.com, and later, executive editor of The Center Square, Dan McCaleb, and DC reporter Casey Harper will take a deeper dive into some of the top stories of the week, including reaction to the possibility of IRS tracking transactions over $600, a new study on the effects of President Biden's corporate tax hikes, and unpacking the latest unemployment numbers for the month of September. Coming up right after this on America in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. Hi, this is Chris Krug, publisher of The Center Square. Our team produces the nationally read and recognized news stories at thecentersquare.com, the country's fastest-growing, nonprofit, nonpartisan, state-focused news and information site. We deliver essential information with a taxpayer sensibility through reporting that's easy to understand and easy to share with your friends and family. We know that you need information that allows you to understand what the governor and your local legislators are doing. Get the news that you need to know at thecentersquare.com. That's thecentersquare.com, thecentersquare.com. Welcome back. Here are the top stories of the past week on thecentersquare.com. The price for the standard Medicare Part B plan is set to increase for 2021. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced that the popular plan, which covers more than 60 million people, will increase by nearly $4 a month to $148.50. Last fiscal year, the country spent almost $836 billion on Medicare, according to a report by the Congressional Research Service. This coming on the heels of the Social Security Administration, announcing it was rolling out its largest cost-of-living adjustment increase in nearly 40 years. Even with the price increases, a new report by MedicareGuide.com found that only one in four senior citizens have $500 or less in a savings account in the event of a medical emergency. To read more about these stories and many others, visit TheCenterSquare.com. Now for a closer look, over to Dan McCaleb and Casey Harper. Thank you, John, and welcome back to America in Focus, powered by the Center Square. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire Service. Joining me today, as he does every week, is Casey Harper, the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. We are recording this on Friday, October 15th. Casey, today is your birthday. Happy birthday. How does 50 feel? Oh, you know, uh, Dan... 50 feels as good as it did for you 30 years ago. So <laughs> just the same. Um, it feels great. Yes, it is my birthday. Very, uh, very grateful to be alive. It's a good year. It's been a good year. Well, good. Happy birthday. Any uh, special plans? The wife taking you out? What's going on? Yeah, we're going to a little out-of-town trip. A little, um, you know, going to Inner Harbor in Baltimore. It'll be fun. Uh, as our listeners know, I'm based in D.C. So Baltimore is is just a train right away. Well, nice. Just make sure you get a full uh, work day in before you head out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'll be sure to do that. Just, yeah. <laughs> All right. Speaking of work, we got a few things to talk about today. Um, top story uh, for the podcast this week Nancy Pelosi doubled down 
on a plan uh, pitched by uh, President Joe Biden in the administration to beef up the IRS, including mm -hmm. forcing banks um, to disclose transactions to the IRS of accounts holding over $600. That seems to me like that's more than just um, uh, uh, the wealthy. What, tell us about this. Casey, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, your your instincts there are the instincts shared by many Americans. And so uh, you, you pretty much gave the overview, but essentially one of the big ways that President Biden wants to fund his you know $3.5 trillion in federal spending uh, without increasing taxes, because increasing taxes is very difficult. It's hard to get them through Congress. They're unpopular. But his his scheme, you might call it, I don't, I don't mean that in the most negative way, just his idea is to increase IRS enforcement. That way you can increase revenue without adding new taxes. And so he wants more federal spending to go to the IRS so that they can um, beef up their auditing divisions. And uh, so they're gonna be auditing more. And a big part of that is they want to have the banks report all transactions or bank accounts over $600. So they say, as you said, that this is for um, getting, you know, catching very wealthy people who are evading taxes. But uh, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, $600. How is that, you know, how is this kind of, uh, going to catch billionaires? Isn't this going to catch basically um, all, almost all Americans who have bank accounts? And, you know, several, over a hundred business groups, you know, all the banking associations just about have raised the alarm about this for weeks. They've been sending letters, trying to get attention on this issue and saying, this is going to be very expensive for banks. It's going to be an invasion of privacy. Um, and so what if if Biden's hope was to, you know, increase revenue without all the controversy that goes along with tax increases, I think he's got a whole new different kind of controversy on his hands. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be tens, tens of millions of Americans, more than 100 million Americans. Um, I don't even know how it how it would be doable with particularly with 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 uh, internet security issues and and the potential for this information to be stolen or leaked or whatever. It just seems I I, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean security is a big a big problem. I think we've seen there may come a time where the largest uh, institutions in the country are able to secure their data from hackers, but we've certainly not reached that point yet. I mean, there's been I don't mean to single many people out but we know you know wells fargo if you if you think that for example any place could secure their information and be one of the you know largest banks in the country but they've had issues you know with the hacking different very um, high level giant gigantic businesses have been able to have been hacked and so putting all your eggs in one basket of the irs um i don't know it's it's just a big a big fat target in the minds of a lot of people and uh i don't know that you know, I think sometimes people attribute uh, malice to the government or to the president when sometimes, you know, if, if, if incompetence is just as good as explanation, you should assume it's incompetence, not malice. But I don't know. I think there's just a lot of unintended consequences that are being um, pointed out that maybe didn't arise when this plan was first proposed. And not only are banks <clears throat> pushing hard back against this, I mean, I've states are as well there are state treasurers state governors who have said this is massive federal government mm -hmm. overreach um I, I know some states uh, have said they won't allow the enforcement of such a law it's just uh, um <laughs> there's so many issues um nationally right now between um with between inflation and the border crisis and mm -hmm. and just the partisan politics going on this just seems like Proposing something like this seems to just to be adding fuel to the fire. 
Yeah, and one thing uh, I I didn't actually include this in my reporting yet. I'm still digging into it, but you know, I spoke with the source this week, and he pointed out that some of the banks that are hardest hit by this are minority-owned banks or banks that um, target small ethnic groups. You know, there there are banks that serve certain ethnic populations almost exclusively. Um, some people don't know that, but those banks, according to my sources, those are the ones taking the hardest hit because. Uh, people who immigrated from authoritarian regimes to the United States are extremely wary of this requirement because it reminds them of what they immigrated away from. And he said that, you know, uh, for example, Asian Bank, which is a very, this is a, var, a large bank that obviously uh, caters to, you know, certain ethnic groups. And they have received a lot of complaints, a lot of concerns because um, some of their customers have immigrated from you know, nations that had very authoritarian regimes that monitored everything, monitored bank accounts. And they say, wait a minute, this looks really familiar. And uh, that, I just thought that was particularly interesting. One, that it's hurting minority banks first, but the people who immigrated from um, authoritarian regimes are the first to point out that this could be a big problem. That's, that's, that is definitely an interesting take. I look forward to reading your reporting uh, on that. Of course, uh, this is part of the $3.5 trillion rec rec reconciliation bill that's still tied up in Congress, so it's not law yet. Mm -hmm. um, um, so uh, uh, certainly at the Center Square, thecentersquare.com, uh, keep coming back to us because we'll be reporting more on this very important story. Uh, also this week, uh, Casey, new study uh, of President Biden's uh, proposed corporate tax hikes uh, came out. What is mm -hmm. what did this? What did that study tell us? Sure. So um, the American Enterprise Institute released a report this week, which analyzed um, Biden's proposed corporate tax increases, which are another way to fund this, you know, mammoth spending plan. Uh, funding it has really been the big problem. Congress has a little easier time spending money. Not always, but you know, it's the funding where they really rubber hits the road because of the economic impact and you know of higher taxes, but. You know, essentially, it evaluates how this report evaluates how America's corporate tax rate will, you know, put us in relation to the rest of the world. Uh, it, it it really argues that including this tax hike would make the U.S. less competitive on the world stage and could harm economic growth because it would disincentivize investment. And so, you know, to put this kind of give an example to that, it, if you can imagine that you're some international business and you're looking to invest or to expand your operations or to build a headquarters, um, one of the main things you're going to look at is the tax structure of the country that you're looking to invest in. There are other factors like how educated is the population because you, know, you need enough educated workers a lot of times for these bigger companies. How good is the infrastructure? And so it's not that it's not that this report is saying that companies are going to leave the U.S. to go to a totally undeveloped nation, right? It's more that there's a group of developed nations that have the population, you know, the educated workforce and the infrastructure to service corporations. And they all kind of compete with one another for these uh, corporate jobs, corporate headquarters. And so <clears throat> you can imagine if, if the U.S. goes up to the top of this uh, corporate tax rate bucket, then the countries might be, or these companies might be incentivized to go to an EU nation or to go to a different developed nation to have their headquarters headquarters there. Right. The plan, I think the plan calls for to raise the corporate rate from 21% to 28%, uh, correct? So that's a significant mm -hmm. yeah. seven percentage point yes. um, increase. And it, it also seems to be uh, uh, in contrast to the previous story we talked about, about the, uh, the forcing banks to report the IRS. 
Um, you, one of one of the things, uh, one of the concerns the Biden administration has is that big companies, uh, in particular, very wealthy Americans, hide their money um, overseas. Um, mm -hmm. If you're going to increase the corporate tax rate that significantly, just as you said, companies might decide to move overseas because of it. That's right. And uh, just to put some hard numbers on this. So the, the report, you know, looked at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is includes 38 member countries. It kind of just it's a group and that uh, is, is a good way to think about this. And um, these tax increases, which have not been put in place yet, but would would be under Biden's plan, would put the U.S. near the top of those 38. Meaning they're having so, the high, among the highest of those. 38. Yes. Yes. So. Um, so and there's kind of some different, a little bit of difference between what House Democrats are talking about and what Biden proposed, but there's not that much difference. And so um, the corporate tax rate will be third, you know, the hot, third highest in the OECD. The the METR corporate investment would rise to twenty, would be the third highest, and then the other one would be the second highest. So there's there's kind of there's a lot of moving parts. I don't want to focus too much on percentages because the percentages vary depending on the different plans, and but they're all significant increases and they're all going to be the highest out of the um, OECD. And so um, it's, it would be a bit, a big difference from what we're used to. And uh, you're right to point out that it will incentivize um, companies to, you know, move their money overseas. Now, I think a Biden supporter would say that, you know, other provisions of Biden's plan would make sure that they're not able to do that. Uh, you know, whether those are effective is, a, is another question. Um, corporations and wealthy people, are really good at not paying taxes. <laughs> so they're really good at, you know, they have huge legal teams and things and ways to get around all kinds of stuff. So enforcing these things is is a problem. It's the whole, entirely separate issue. All right, more interesting news to keep following uh, in Congress. Uh, also this week, Casey, as they do every week, the US Department of Labor released new unemployment data, particularly for new unemployment filings, but also unemployment overall. And was there some good news this week? There was good news. Um, so the uh, Department of Labor they released their weekly um, unemployment filings, and they found that uh, first-time filers for unemployment fell by 36,000 for the week ending October 9th. Now, this is the second consecutive week the agency reported a big decrease in unemployment claims. So that drops us down actually to 293,000, uh, which is, is I mean, below 300,000 is a good benchmark. Go ahead. In new and this is in new filings only. Yes, <clears throat> first time. Yeah, new filings. Correct, uh, and th those reached the lowest level for initial claims since March of last year, which is really like after the pandemic began. Uh, so we are th these numbers are good for the pandemic era, but they're not good for pre-pandemic. Is the way to think about it. So, so, so you can say we're on the right track. Right. Yeah. They're still higher than before the pandemic, but correct. they're significantly lower. Um, than the height of the pandemic, essentially, is what you're saying. That's right. That's right. Um, and you, you know, the uh, the ongoing level was down. So you, you, these are first time that I'm talking about. So uh, for ongoing benefits, it decreased 134,000. So that's the lowest since also March of uh, March of last year, when it was like 1.77 million. So. Uh, so now it's it's 2.593 compared to March when it was 1.77 million. So still a lot higher, um, both 
in new new filers and in ongoing filers, but this is two weeks of significant decrease. And you know, if you've been following the podcast or the centersquare.com at all, you know we've reported a lot on the federal three hundred dollar week uh, a week unemployment benefits on top um, of the state benefits. That was a pand <laughs> pandemic era action by Congress because so many people were out of work. Um, Congress mm -hmm. stepped in and wanted to help the unemployed, but those expired in September, correct? Yeah, early September those expired, and so a lot of economic groups, you know, Goldman Sachs and different, you know, different analysts have said that after those benefits expired, we could expect unemployment to decrease because you know, uh, with state benefits, with other kind of um, government benefits, with the three hundred dollar weekly unemployment from the federal government, it was enough theoretically to keep people from having to go back to work, or at least enough to just have them kind of take their time and not have the sense of urgency to go back to work. So those expired in early September and everyone expected unemployment to drop. But as we reported and we've talked about those number, unemployment actually increased, which was kind of- uh, in, the, in the early weeks is what you're saying. Right, right. right. Unemployment increased in the um, weeks immediately following the expiration of federal benefits. And so it was kind of a head scratcher. Uh, now. Goldman Sachs, you know, I've read some of their reporting. They did say that it will be a delayed effect. But anyway, now for the second week in a row, those um, unemployment numbers have dropped um, pretty significantly. And so I would say it's too early to tell for sure uh, what, where this is going. But this is confirmation of all the predictions. It's two weeks in a row. It's a big, a big drop. And so if we see this steady trend of continue decrease uh, for most of the um, weeks to come, then I think we can probably safely assume that the expiration of those benefits was responsible. Well, the next week will probably be a, a pretty a pretty big week in terms of next week's reporting by the Department of Labor. Mm -hmm. It's been two, two consecutive weeks. Trend or not trend, don't know, but three consecutive weeks, that's definitely a trend, if you ask me. Yeah. So I expect that we'll be reporting on that again next Thursday, maybe even yeah. talking about it on the podcast, American as long as you, podcast. As long as you don't um, put me with those first-time filers, I'll be ready. <laughs> I hope to not have to, Casey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Gas prices, of course. Anyone uh, who drives a car knows that gas prices are up significantly year over year. This year, gas is uh, uh, the average depending on where you're at in the United States, um, the average uh, national average for gasoline is about $3.25 per gallon. If you live in California, in many spots, it's more than $5 uh, a gallon. But as gas prices continue to go up, um, President Biden is still pondering um, new regulations on the oil and gas industry. What's going on here? Yes, you're right. I think uh Americans don't need the SoonerSquare.com to tell them that their gas prices are going up, but probably not. But we we told them anyway, and I'll say that we told them because the numbers have really trended high. I mean, we we had a reporting by Bethany Blakely that oil prices hit the highest level in seven years. Um, we've seen gas prices just skyrocket in recent years. I mean, some places like Manhattan, gas prices are hit nearly five dollars a gallon for unleaded. Now, you may not be sympathetic to you know, Manhattan residents, but more than 40 states around the country have gas prices well over $3 a gallon. Um, gas Buddy is one one group that's kind of a funny name, but, the, you know, they have reporting on tracking of these numbers. And the national average uh, is around $3.25 per gallon, 
which is you know well above what it was last year, um, much higher than it was last year. Uh, in the last month, gas prices rose just eight cents alone. So eight cents doesn't sound like a lot, but you come you do that every month, uh, you're really gonna be somewhere, and you know you're gonna be uh, almost a dollar um, by by this time next year. You know, so that we if we, if we kept raising eight cents a month next year, we're going to be talking about $4 and 25 cents in national average. Wow. So yeah, I mean, and to get into a little bit of oh, one more thing, the gas gas buddy found that American drivers are paying over $400 million more for gas than they were last year. So there's real numbers on this. You might say, why is it? Uh, to, to, to be honest, it is a complicated problem. I don't think it's totally fair to attribute these big, um, supply chain issues and and things just to administrative policies because it is complicated but there are definitely Biden administration policies that policies that have contributed to the the problem we're experiencing now and a lot of people in the oil and gas industry are pointing that out in of course asking for changes so one of those big ones is the keystone pipeline right i mean it's in some ways the keystone pipeline is a symbolic is symbolic of the fight on oil and gas but um, President Biden stopped the Keystone Pipeline, and you know, of course, industry insiders want to put that back up. Uh, that was just just to, to clarify. That was a pipeline that was under construction, uh, approved by the Donald Trump uh, administration, the former president. A seventeen hundred mile pipeline um, that was going to cross from, from Alberta, uh, Canada, across uh, six U.S. states down to the Texas Gulf Coast. Um, that was going to deliver. Um, tens of thousands of barrels a day uh, throughout the United States. Uh, President Biden um, canceled the permits on that, and and the company decided to discontinue constructing that pipeline. That's right. And uh, you know, one one big criticism uh, that's launched against the Biden is that he discourages domestic oil production, but he really encourages it abroad. And we purchase, you know, all this oil, and we have it shipped. <laughs> long distances to the U.S. And so we're still really consuming around the same amount of oil, same greenhouse gas emissions. It's just much more expensive because we're buying it from around the world and having it shipped here versus producing it domestically. Under President Trump, we were essentially um, energy independent, um, which, of course, makes gas, you can make gas prices a lot lower, but it is also kind of a national security concern. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for how, for how many decades have we had issues in the Middle East just because of the oil situation and our mm -hmm. dependence on, on, on oil over there? Um, we had become energy independent, uh, not, not to say we didn't export or import any oil um, mm -hmm. um, over the last several years, um, but, but we could become energy independent. Um, but now these Biden policies are essentially um, making us rely on foreign oil which could create future messes between the U.S. and other Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, that's true. There's definitely there's the international thing at play. I mean, uh, when we talk about other countries that we're competing with, like Russia and China, energy production is, you know, top of mind. We think about being competitive, being independent. China could start leveraging uh their relationships with some of these Middle Eastern countries, if, if it really came down to where we were in a more tense situation. Um, one of the first, you know, battles, if, if we really heightened relationships with someone like China, would be um, leveraging relationships with different suppliers around the world and pressuring them to do different things. And so um, the more, you know, 
independent we are uh, energy wise it just gives us a stronger position both when we're doing trade deals when we're bargaining national security all that uh one you know one big um new you mentioned new uh regulations i mean some i think some in the inter- environmental camp would say that biden hasn't been strong enough but he's definitely he's considering new methane emissions uh regulations which would hit a lot of state uh you know states that produce energy hard and and one thing that people don't understand about this is if you don't live in a high energy producing state, you may not think much of it. But um, energy industries really do two big things. Where I grew up in East Texas, working in the oil fields was a way that, a, you know, someone could make enough money to support their family without having to go get an advanced degree. So I had many friends, many guys who, you know, left high school, maybe the community college, but then they went and worked in the oil field and they were able to raise a family. You know, they wanted a, a wife to be able to stay at home with their kids so that you know homeschool or whatever that would be and they were able to work one good job and so it it creates like a really a middle class that the energy industry does create this middle class where people can um have a good paying job without you know getting an undergrad or master's degree and the other thing it does is it produces a ton of revenue for these states there are states in the u.s that their entire budgets would implode if they didn't have um, oil and gas tax revenue to depend on you know, New Mexico is a big one that comes to mind. I know Texas relies on it a lot, but Louisiana. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there's many. And so it, it has, there's down, there's after effects. And so if you live somewhere like uh, Maine or Northern California, you may not really see the point, but if you live in some of these other energy producing States, it's a top issue. It's a top campaign issue. And we try not to get too political, but I, this is the kind of thing that's going to come up in November. Um, if you're running in an energy producing state, you're going to be bringing up gas prices. You're going to be bringing up oil and gas jobs. And these are the kind of things I think the Democrats are thinking about and probably a little concerned about going into 2022 and 2024. In fact, um, uh, I know uh, you didn't write this story, but a story we had uh, out of Texas uh, this week based on uh, this topic, uh, seven or eight U.S. representatives from Texas, Democratic U.S. representatives from from Texas, sent a letter to the Biden administration asking him to ease back on these new regulations because it is having such a dramatic uh, effect on their districts uh, back in Texas, which are oil-producing districts. Um, so, so it, it, it is there is bipartisan concerns uh, about yes. some of this. All right, yeah. thank you, Casey. That's all the time we have this week. Uh, thank you. Thank you again. Happy birthday again. Take it easy on the partying. Partying. Yes. Have fun. Yes, always. always. After, <laughs> have fun, but after your workday is done. Hey, that's our motto here at the Center Square. Have fun, but after your workday is done. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you again, uh, listeners. Uh, we'll be back next week. <laughs>